Voyage. Having left Hawaii, Cameron, Hiroki, and Charlie are now sailing across the Pacific Ocean, headed for Japan, a distance of 4,000 miles. Cameron has planned and provisioned for the trip to last between 25 and 28 days, allowing enough time for him to get his footing once in Yokosuka, Japan, before his new assignment, the Submarine Group 7, begins. When you sail to uh, Japan from Hawaii, you don't actually go in a straight line. So in order to optimize the wind and the currents, you leave Hawaii and you actually go southwest. You go down there so that you get the strongest trade winds and the current going in the same direction that you want to go. You'll then ride that for as long as you can until you have to finally turn northwest to get up to Japan. When you make that turn is, is crucial because there's something called the North Pacific High, which is the doldrums. So inside the doldrums, there's no current to take you anywhere. There's no wind to take you anywhere. If you're caught in there in a sailboat with a motor that's not working or out of gas, you're just stuck. So, so the plan is you, you know that there's one point of the North Pacific High that you're gonna, that you're gonna cut through. And that, that high kind of drifts around a little bit. So it's not always in the same place. So the plan was leave Hawaii, go Southwest, get the strong winds and currents, come up, and then we were not going to use any fuel at all until we reached the doldrums. When we crossed through the North Pacific High, that's when we were going to use the gas that we had on board, and we were going to, you know, motor through that section, and then when you get through that section, you know, now you've got good wind and currents uh, off of Japan that you can they kind of take you the rest of the way. So that, that's kind of the overall, overall strategy. With his former floating condominium now out on open water, Cameron once again finds his body struggling to adjust to life at sea, much to the surprise of his new crewmates. In the winter, the, the waves off Hawaii get, get fairly big. And so we're out there and, and the waves are big. And I've been on a submarine, which rocks and rolls one way, but I really, my boat has not been out uh, in a long time because I've been you know, trying to get it ready. Literally the first day, um, I start throwing up and, and I mean, I just puking my guts out and Charlie and Hiroki are looking at me like, dude, I thought you were in the Navy. Like, why are you throwing up? So the, the first three days I puked and I knew that I was going to get over it. I knew that like, it's a different rocket and rolling. I got to get used to it, but oh man, it is, it's like the worst feeling and there's no escaping it. As Cameron once again finds his sea legs, the three men begin working to try and establish something of a daily routine aboard the boat. Once a day, around 4.30, uh, we would, 4.30 Hawaii time, uh, we would get out the GPS, turn it on, get our location, and plot it on the, on the chart. Then we would turn on the, the single sideband radio to the uh, weather station. And so we would get kind of a, you know, a broadcast, a, a, an idea of like where the weather systems were at uh, around us. And then we would, we would plot out what we were going to do over the next 24 hours, kind of what our course was going to be, how we were going to do things. And then at five, that's when we uh, turned to the station where we would talk to a guy that was in Hawaii. 
And so there's really kind of a network. There was one guy in Hawaii and there were a couple of other boats that were sailing, you know, kind of around Hawaii to Palau, kind of in that area. And we could kind of hear some of their stuff. So we would pass our position. Uh, we would give an update of, you know, uh, the weather, like this is what the weather is, you know, at this position. We would uh, update, like, what's going on with the boat. Do we have any mechanical problems? Do we have any navigation problems? You know, how, what's the health of the crew? How's everybody doing? And then we would listen as other boats that were, that were out there were, would kind of, you know, report the same thing. And we would, we would, we would note where they were at too, so that if somebody needed us or if, or if we needed somebody, we'd have a general idea. While it's Cameron's boat, he is cognizant enough of Charlie's age and experience to try and utilize him in establishing the basic routine and ground rules. Yeah, I think Charlie overestimated me. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I think if he knew who I was and what my boat was, he would have not flown from Poland. I mean, he knows that I'm a naval officer, but I mean, navigating a, a U.S. nuclear submarine and sailing a 32-foot sailboat are so different. Nonetheless, Cameron applies as much of what he's learned in the Navy as possible to the voyage. On the submarine, we, we do six-hour shifts. And so that means in a given, you know, there's four shifts in a day. Um, and so I, I, you know, again, it's one of these things. Like, well, I'm just, I'm just going to take all the submarine stuff and translate it to, to a small sailboat. And uh, Charlie was like, nah, man, that's a, that's a bad idea. And I was like, I, why? And he's like, uh, well, because... Hiroki's going to be driving at night if we do that. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's, that's a bad idea. So, so initially, actually, initially we did 12-hour shifts. So uh, I, I drove for 12 hours, uh, and then Charlie drove for 12 hours. And basically we had Charlie driving during the day, and we had me driving at night. And then we had Hiroki was supposed to was working like an, an overlap shift. So Hiroki would work, you know, six hours on with Charlie, and then he'd work six hours on with me, and then he'd be off. And so, so this is the way that we were trying to teach Hiroki how to sail. Teaching Hiroki to sail is more difficult to task than either Cameron or Charlie are prepared for, as the 12-hour shifts prove to be too daunting. And they soon divide, driving up into regular, more manageable eight-hour shifts. I took the night shift, and then Hiroki would wake up and take the day shift, and then Charlie would take the evening shift. And this is how we were gonna kinda, uh, kinda do our shifts. And relatively soon, it was a, almost immediately apparent, apparent that like, Hiroki was not uh, really paying much attention to driving the ship. Hiroki never bothered to change the the course of the boat. If the wind shifted and started blowing the boat off course, then he would just let it go off course. And so every day we would we would plot our position and we're like, man, like we're off. This is not where we thought we would be. He kept an eye out. He made sure we didn't bump into things. But we would have to constantly, even on our off time, kind of go up, hang out with him, like, hey, Hiroki, how's it going? And we'd check the compass. Make sure the boat's going in the right direction. If not, you know, we'd adjust the wind vane uh, and then kind of go back below. Hiroki's free-spirited nature continues to create tension between the men with regard to safety protocol. I had a rule that if you're on deck by yourself, 
you have to have a harness on. And the harness basically ties you to the boat. And the reason why is the boat is self-steering. So on a, on a sailboat that doesn't have self-steering, if you fall off, the boat will actually turn up wind and stop, and you'll probably be able to swim back to it. Maybe. But a boat that has self-steering, if you fall off, the boat's just gonna keep going, and you're just gonna be in the ocean. And it, it doesn't take any time at all. I mean, literally within 15 minutes, you are such a tiny little dot in the ocean that no one would ever find you. Countless times we would come up and, and Hiroki would be walking around, he'd be up on the bow, you know, kind of hanging out, looking around, and he wouldn't have his harness on. And they're like, hey, Hiroki, you gotta put your harness on. And he'd like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. And he'd, you know, he'd reluctantly, you know, hook it on, and you're like, dude, this is important. You will die. And he's like, oh, okay. And then literally the very next day, Charlie would grab me and be like, Hiroki doesn't have his harness on again. With Charlie naturally occupying the role of a stoic, salty dog father figure, Cameron finds himself increasingly forced into taking on a big brother role in an effort to keep Hiroki on task. But further friction arises as a result of some of the decisions or in hindsight, mistakes made by Cameron himself. I made the mistake of asking a buddy of mine who's a Navy SEAL, hey man, what should I buy for food? And this guy was, was a legit sailor. He sailed from San Diego to Hawaii. So I'm like, he knows. He's like, man, he's like, all you need is oatmeal. He's like, you can live off of oatmeal for months. It's got plenty of nutrition. No matter how rough the seas get, you can always make oatmeal. No matter how seasick you get, you can always hold down oatmeal. It never makes you sick. It's perfect. And so I bought enough oatmeal for us to eat oatmeal every day. Um, it turns out if you're not a Navy SEAL, living off of oatmeal for weeks is horrible. Absolutely horrible. Dinner would consist usually of early on, it would consist of you know rice or pasta. Charlie was easily the best cook of the three, capable of turning a can of tuna and some rice into the nautical equivalent of a gourmet meal. But the lack of options quickly takes a toll on the trio's morale. I, I never really cooked before. And so like, I thought rice expanded way more than it did. And so, you know, it turns out we didn't have nearly as much rice as I, and pasta turns out doesn't expand at all. So, you know, you just got what you got. <laughs> And uh, so as, as, as we started running lower and lower on food, it, it became more oatmeal and something, uh, even for dinner. Now, if you wanted breakfast, you cooked breakfast yourself, and the only thing that was available was oatmeal. And if you cooked lunch for yourself, the only thing that was available was oatmeal. That was it. So, so there was a little friction toward me about doing a really bad job of buying food. But but I did have some other stuff. I had like some like I had some canned meat, like canned ham, and I had some canned fruits. Sunday was our celebration day. So every Sunday we would open up a canned ham and some canned fruit and just have a huge meal. 
And I had a couple of like little treats and stuff, like you know, like maybe some you know Twix bars or Oreo cookies or whatever. But Hiroki was a prolific snacker. Hiroki was always hungry. Needless to say, the Twix and Oreos did not last long. But as much as Hiroki made his displeasure over the way Cameron had provisioned the boat known, Cameron and Charlie would in turn grow irked over Hiroki's seemingly bottomless appetite. I brought one jar of peanut butter. And we're, we're several days in, and uh, I said, hey guys, I've got some peanut butter. Why don't we do some peanut butter crackers as a, as a dessert? And, uh, and I go to get the, the peanut butter, and it's gone. The jar's there. So it's like, okay, I, I, I did pack a jar of peanut butter. There it is. It is, it is nearly scraped, like completely clean. And I'm like, dude, I didn't even open this. And Charlie, straight up honest guy, like, I didn't open it. <laughs> you know, Hiroki's like, well, I ate a little bit of peanut butter. But if the guys thought the food situation was bad. The way I had done the water was, you know, the, the boat has a water tank. But I had read that, you know, if that tank gets a hole in it or if something gets into that water and all of your water is there, you're in trouble. So, so I had water in the, in the ship's water tank, but I also had the majority of the water was in these five gallon jugs. And I had the five gallon jugs stored all, all over the boat. And a lot of them were stored on the top of the boat, kind of tied to things on the top. And this was, this was a brilliant idea, I thought, because you know if I lose one, it's just five gallons, I still got all the rest of my water supply, Plenty of water for three guys for, you know, 30 days. You know, that's that's the longest we'll be out here is 30 days. I got plenty of water for 30 days. So then one day, you know, I open up one of the, the water tanks and man, like the, the water just tasted horrible. And I'm like, well, this is a bad jug. Close that jug off. We'll put that to the side. I get another jug out. Oh, that water tastes horrible too. And now I realized that, that these plastic jugs that I had bought to put the water in, like the sunlight was doing something that was kind of leaching the plastic into the water. So the, the water tasted like plastic. And, and I'm like, well, I mean, we, so like, well, guys, I said, we better drink this water first. You know, we'll drink all the water that's that's topside first, and then we'll we'll save the other water. And every day, it became less and less drinkable. And I, I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, without these jugs, we don't have enough water. As the saying goes, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. But while Cameron did not have the lemons, what he did have was a can of powdered mix in order to make lemonade. And so I was like, that's all right. So what we're going to do is we're just going to, we're going to, we'll cook with it and we'll make lemonade with it. And we get, so then the days go on. And now, I mean, you have to put so much lemonade in the water to make it drinkable that it's, it's almost too much lemonade. It was so, so I'm like, oh, this, we're, this, this is, this is trouble. Despite their food and water woes, the sea occasionally did provide. We were really running low on the good food, and it was really mostly oatmeal. And morale was like in the dumps. 
all of a sudden, you know, the lure takes off. You know, the, there's a fish on. And, and, and so, you know, we're, you know, trying to reel it, like, don't break the line, you know? So, you know, we don't know what we're doing. And we pull him up, and he's a yellowfin tuna that's probably as big as my torso. He is, it's, let me tell you, she, it's a she. She is huge. And Hiroki opens up the, the fish, and, and there's eggs. And he's like, oh, you know, this is, this is, you know, caviar basically but you know he's like there's a name for it in japanese like this is really special like we, we get to eat the eggs and so uh so hiroki makes the first cuts uh he brings the eggs out and and uh we eat those and he gives us a, a couple of slices of sashimi so you know raw fish he's like oh this is the best part of the fish you know to eat raw and then uh and then after we've done that you know there's still a lot of fish left and so charlie's like well we we got to cook it Charlie's the best cook. So Charlie cooked some of the fish and I cooked some of the fish. If I had been a smart man, I would have let Charlie cook the whole fish. But I mean, this is a, this is a big yellowfin tuna, but I don't have a refrigerator. So there's no way to store this fish. So we basically, we have to eat it. And so, you know, as the night goes on, the day goes on, we eat more fish. And as the night goes on, you know, we're eating we eat more fish, and it it was the first time I had ever seen Hiroki full. Like he actually got to a point where he was like, yeah, I can't, I can't eat anymore. We didn't fish for a long time after that. When the men weren't sailing or eating, there was certainly time to kill out on the open ocean. Miles from civilization, a chance to get to know each other better and let any ruffled feathers settle. I'd like to raise a glass of this god-awful tasting water in honor of today, March 12, 1999, and Poland officially joining NATO. Here's to you, Charlie. Proud to call you an ally and a crew member. Thank you. It is a long time coming. How do you say cheers in Polish? Dwozje zdrowie. Dwozje zdrowie. Na zdrowie. Oh, man. That is rough. I know I've said it before, but I'm really sorry about the water situation, guys. Gonna have to start using more lemonade mix or maybe start distilling our own urine. We should drink the whiskey to celebrate. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like we should save it, at least until we get to Japan. Since it was a gift and all, I just feel like it'd be bad luck or something. We have already had bad luck without even opening the bottle. Hey, come on, man. We made it this far, right? We're still here, still on course, maybe a little behind schedule. It's all on how you look at things. Me, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I wish my glass was half full of whiskey and not plastic lemon water. It's all just a matter of perspective, Hiroki. See, some people would say a guy like me, who gets seasick pretty much every time he steps on board a boat, maybe shouldn't be living and working on boats. But here I am, doing it, right? And now some people might hear all that squawking and hollering up there on deck at 0800 while they're trying to get a little shut-eye and call it singing, but that's where me and Charlie here beg to differ. Psst. I sing great. You sing loud. Let us hear you sing. I cannot sing. Ah, see? Then what do you know? I know when you sing, all the birds and dolphins disappear. 
So, what are we doing for entertainment tonight, gentlemen? Movie, cards, a little backgammon. Waves are too big for backgammon. Remember last time? Movie only if it will make me laugh. No more disasters at sea. I have bad dreams. I could read us another chapter from Les Mis. Boring. Dominoes. That's an idea. Maybe we should do a domino tournament and the grand prize can be the last candy bar. What happened to the others? Let's see. There's 12 candy bars to a box and I bought two boxes. So either we got a stowaway mouse with a sweet tooth on board or I'd say someone's been going to town on the candy bars. Now for me, I know I've had precisely two candy bars. I have eaten no candy bars. I may have eaten some candy bars. I tell you what, my friend, here's your chance to score the last one. Set them up. You guys go first. I'll take the wheel a while, then play the winner. The easiest way to get along is just to get along. And, and you know, I knew from being on the submarine, you know, you just, people do things, they annoy you. That's fine. They're just gonna annoy you. You just gotta, you just gotta let go. You know what I mean? You can't let it. You can't, you can't make a deal out of it, you know? That was the general day-to-day -day rhythm. While the men could learn to make do when it came to food and beverage, Mother Nature was another force altogether. As mentioned earlier, a key part of their plan was to sail through the first leg of the journey with the aid of the notoriously strong southern trade winds in order to conserve diesel fuel for the doldrums that lie ahead. But not for the last time, Cameron, Charlie, and Hiroki would discover that nature had other plans. We go down there and there is no wind. I mean, there are hours and days where there's not enough wind to steer the boat. The boat is literally just drifting. And the, the sails, there's this sound they make. It's kind of a little breeze will come up and they'll go whoop as they fill with wind and then they go as they go limp. And then the halyards rattle. So it's like a whoop, rattle, 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 whoop. And, and there's not even enough wind to steer the boat. Not even enough wind. The boat's just kind of like drifting. And it is hot. I mean, hot. I, I wrote in my journal that I felt like I was an ant. And the heat was an elephant. And it would come every morning and sit on me. And just suffocate me with its weight and its you know, humidity, and it wouldn't leave until midnight. So the problem is, if we use gas here, when we expect to have wind, when we get to the doldrums, we'll be out of gas, and we'll never make it out of there. We'll, we'll be like the rhyme of the ancient mariner. We'll just be stuck at sea. Although I felt like that. I did feel like that, that poem kept coming back to me. I felt like I was an idol as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. You know, water, water everywhere and nowhere any drop to drink because it, it was hot. And so what you would do is we had a bucket tied to a rope and you throw that overboard and you scoop up seawater and dump it on you. And, and that's how you would cool off. And in 15 minutes, you would just be salt crusted and dry again. So you dump another bucket of, of water on you. Cameron continues to feel the stress mounting on his shoulders 
as the continued lack of wind begins to create a ripple effect aboard the Lulano. The other problem we had was we needed to charge the batteries in order to turn the navigation lights on and get on the radio. And so without enough wind to, to properly sail, we would have to turn the motor on every day. Uh, we would make a little progress. We'd turn the motor on, we'd motor for a while um, and uh, charge the batteries up and then turn the motor off. But after doing this, you know, more and more, I started thinking, oh my God, like we're gonna run out of gas when we're in the doldrums. So this is, this is another problem. But all these issues pale in comparison to a problem that suddenly arises with the sails. With the wind being so light, you know, the sails are kind of flopping from side to side. At one point, the sail gets caught on the, uh, it's called a spreader. It's this thing that's up the mast um, that kind of comes out a little bit to keep the shrouds out. The sail gets caught on it. And so now the sail's caught on it. We you know, can't get the sail up, can't get the sail down, can't move the sail. Like this is, this is a problem. And so the only way to fix it is to climb up the mast. And I'm scared of heights. So it's about up to where this part is, it's probably, you know, 45 feet off the deck. And so, you know, I, I had read some books. I was ready for this thing. I had like a, what's called a bosun's chair, but I had the bosun's chair that came with the boat. And it was basically a two by four with two holes drilled in it. And, and rope going through it with knots on the other side. And, you know, when I was like going through my checklist, it looked great. But now that I'm about to sit in this thing and go up the mast, it does not look great. I mean, it looks very shoddy. Like this is, you know, a wooden plank from 1970 something that's been on the boat for 20 something years in a wet environment. I'm like, oh my God, like this thing is gonna break and I'm gonna die. But I'm like, it's my boat. I gotta do it. I gotta be the one to go up. They start pulling me up the mast and the waves are about probably five to six feet tall, which is, doesn't sound that big. It's not really that big. But when you're going up the mast, on a 32-foot boat, those waves started to become huge. And, and the boat is swinging from side to side. And so, you know, the farther you go up the mast, then the farther you swing on each swing. And not only that, but like my weight is unsettling the boat and is also making it sway further and further on each time that it rocks. So now I'm up on top of the mast and, and the boat is, you know, swaying from side to side. And I, when I look down, like I am literally like, there, there are times when I look down and, and I'm not over the boat. You know, the part of the mast that I'm on is over the ocean. And then I look and now I'm over the ocean on the other side of the boat. <laughs> I'm like, I just want to hold on, but I want to look. But I have to, I have to like fix this thing. I'm up on the mast to fix something, but I am like scared to death. To, to let go and because I thought my other fear is that that if I lose my grip and I start swinging now like I am going to be swinging and I'm going to like slam into this mass I'm going to be like one of those little little balls you know that you swing and it hits the other ball and it goes I'm like that's going to be me so I, I'm up there I'm scared to death I'm I'm like 
you know, getting the sail undone, and I get it undone, and now I have to fix the thing that it's caught on, and so I'm, you know, tying that thing down, and, and I, I finally kind of get into a groove where I'm, I'm concentrated on, you know, what I need to do, you know, to get down. From when I got there to when I actually started the task was probably a good two or three minutes, as I just sat there like, oh my god, I'm gonna, this is, this is, this is horrible. So I, I get it done. Literally, I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe I survived that. Cameron emerges triumphant from this incident, but it's not long before the Lilano and her crew come up against their greatest challenge yet. Off in the distance, I see the thunderstorm. And it's thundering and lightning and you know, rain. And I was like, oh my god, like, we haven't seen anything like that, you know, since, since we left Hawaii. Like, that's crazy. And then the winds start picking up. And it's like, oh my God, we got it like, we've got, we got all the big sails up. All, we got every sail up. We got all the biggest sails up and it's about to get stormy and we need to have the little sails up. And so we got to take everything down and put everything back up. All of a sudden I realized that Hiroki, who basically is not scared by anything, the first flash of lightning, and that kid runs below. And he, that's it, he is gone. And didn't say nothing, just like, lightning, he's gone. And we're like, you know, what, what? And uh, we go down, and we're like, hey, Hiroki, you know, and he's like, nope, I don't, it's lightning. I'm not coming up. You know, I'm not gonna get struck by lightning. And we're like, well, you'll be okay. No, no, <laughs> I'm not coming up in the lightning. Charlie's skills navigating the notoriously rugged waters of the North Atlantic come into play as lightning splits the sky, wind tears at the sails, and rain lashes the 32-foot boat. It's like nothing Cameron has ever experienced. I thought it was a, a pretty rough storm. I remember thinking like, wow, man, you know, this is like legit uh, sailing. Charlie looks over at me when it's done and he's like, that, that was good practice for when it gets bad. And I thought, oh. That wasn't bad. <laughs> like, and so of course I'm like, you know, trying to play it cool. Like, oh yeah, yeah. When it gets, yeah, that's good practice for when it gets bad. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh man, this guy's really seen some storms. If he thought this thing was, this thing was minor, I said, I'm, I'm glad I brought him. He's, he's the right guy. With Cameron having had his moment to shine during the incident with the spreader, the storm is most definitely Charlie's. But it's not long before another treacherous situation arises and his solution comes at the hands of a most unexpected hero. The motor suddenly just whoom, and oh God, that's bad. So we, you know, cut it off and trying, you know, we're trying to figure out what's going on. The motor looks fine, everything looks good. And we look behind the boat and, you know, we're trailing this fishing net. And, and again, at, at the time I was like, well, my boat, you know, this is a dangerous, this is another dangerous thing we have to do. Somebody has to jump off and cut the fishing net off the boat. And so we tie a rope around me so that I don't drift away. And I jump off the boat. And when I try to grab, you know, the propeller's going up and down and up and down. And, you know, I, first, the, the whole boat's going up and down. So I dive down underwater and now the propeller's still going, you know, up and down. And I grab hold of it. And now, like, it's pulling me up and down and I'm, you know, trying to, you know, cut this net off the propeller while being pulled and literally, I mean, oh, it was so exhausting and I, I come up and I'm like, wow, that was, 
That was hard. Try it again. And, you know, this propeller is sharp and metal. And it's moving up and down at a high rate of speed. And if it hits me in the head, that, man, we are, nobody's coming to get us. And so I'm trying and I'm trying and I can't get it. And I'm getting more and more exhausted. And finally, I, I come out and, uh, and I'm, I'm exhausted. They, you know, I climb back up on the boat and I'm looking at Charlie. I don't know if I can do this, man. Like this, this is going to take it. This is going to take us a while. We might have to wait until the seas come down. We might be stuck here. And Hiroki's like, ah, I got it. You know, this is probably at Hiroki's, this is probably his lowest point, right? Like, you know, he's eaten all the food. Uh, he's done a horrible job at, at driving the ship. I mean, literally, it's to the point where, where you know, Charlie and I aren't even considering Hiroki as the guy that's going to, you know, save us. And, and man, that dude grabs the rope, ties the rope around his waist, dives in, and unbelievable he's out there for like an amount of time that's like scary like you're starting to think like is he okay like should we and then he you know he comes up and he's got all this net that he's you know cut off and he throws that up on deck and he, he goes back and, and that was a significant feat of uh, athleticism and and bravery because that yeah it was scary uh being a, the my propeller is is deep underwater I mean, you gotta you gotta go down a couple of feet underwater before you get to where the propeller is and uh and it's actually kind of the rudders in front of the propeller so there's a there's a lot of sailboat that's moving up and down uh at a relative high rate of speed that you're trying to navigate uh to cut this stuff off and we looked at him very different after that i mean it was like wow okay like if it comes to some tough stuff this guy can do it i mean he can do it yeah he absolutely saved the day but while the three men revel in their ability to communicate effectively despite the language barriers between them and lean on their individual strengths to overcome life-threatening challenges in private cameron grows increasingly concerned about a problem that looms ever closer one he's been cognizant of since day one now as i looked at the route i planned a couple of places uh, that were going to be emergency stopping points. So I got navigation charts for Wake Island, Bikini Atoll, Iwo Jima, um, and those were kind of our those were our spots. So uh, Wake Island is the closest uh, of all of them. So it's a pretty big sail to get to Bikini Atoll, and it's a pretty big diversion to get to Iwo Jima. But but Wake Island is is was pretty close to our route. Um, and it was, it, it was becoming really clear that, that we were going to have to stop at Wake Island. Um, Wake Island was also our, our biggest problem because it was a U.S. military base. The whole island's a military base. Uh, and I had two foreign nationals on the boat. And, uh, and, you know, I, there was no guarantee that, that Wake Island was, was going to let us stay. And I, th I start thinking like, oh my God, what if, what if Wake Island is one of those like exclusion zones where, you know, they're doing, you know, super secret research on, you know, missile defense or something else. And, and what if it's like, you know, missile defense day and, you know, we can't get in. I was, oh God. So all of these, you know, thoughts and worries, uh, you know, start going through my head. Prior to setting sail, Cameron considered contacting Wake Island but figured rather than potentially being told no, 
It was a bridge he'd cross if necessary. Furthermore, in his mind, there'd be no need to stop. They'd most certainly be close to reaching their destination by this point in the journey. However... Well, now we're 25 days in. The food is low. The water's going bad. We've got to stop. We've got to stop. And now it's really bothering me. Like, oh my God, Charlie is Polish. And, you know, Poland is a former Warsaw Pact country. I mean, that, that's basically like saying, you know, this is the enemy. Hey, can I bring a, you know, U.S. adversary onto a U.S. military base? And I'm thinking like, oh my God, the answer is going to be, the answer is going to be no. So, uh, but I, I didn't want to tell Hiroki and Charlie that they might turn us away because, um, you know, I didn't want to break their spirit. I mean, morale's low. And I remember like, as we're, we're approaching Wake Island and, and you can start to see it on the distance. It was, it was a rough day and we're, you know, bouncing and, and bobbing and, and everything. And, uh, you know, trying to call him up on the radio and like, no answer. I try to call him again, no answer. And then I, the other thought that started coming into my head is this might not be an active base anymore. <laughs> I mean, I was so worried. I was so worried. We will learn what Wake Island has in store for the trio. Indeed, if they'll even be allowed to land there. Plus the return of Mother Nature with a vengeance. All in our next episode. Surviving the Lilino is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Garrick Dion, and Dan Benamore. Executive produced by Cameron Thurman. Cameron is writing a book about his experience on the Lilino and we will update the show notes with a link to the book when it is available. Starring Henry Monfries as Cameron, Jonathan Regier as Charlie, and Austin Kuniyoshi as Hiroki. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by Andres Coca. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes.